us to do is to take a look at uh, a fourth of five exhortations that I would like to leave with the church as we uh, plan to transition uh, to Barry to a new call on our life to, to minister just a little bit north of here. And uh, of the five, this one is maybe the most practical, uh, the easiest to implement in some ways. Uh, it's an exhortation uh, that I feel at least in my own spirit, having shepherded this flock for seven years, that uh, personally, and it can't, I can't really say anything more than that, it's not a word from God necessarily in the emphasis, but personally I feel that uh, moving forward, this is the issue that this church ought to deal with uh, the most. Uh, this, over the next year, over the next maybe five years, that if, if this group could maintain what we have been doing and add to it this, I think we would be overjoyed to see the ways in which God would bless us as, as a family in Christ. Uh, it's something that I haven't maybe done a very good or a very effective job at cultivating myself while I was here. My emphasis has been elsewhere. And so it's uh, maybe in a sense unfair that as I am leaving, I just sort of leave behind uh, exhortation to something that I myself wasn't that good at equipping you to do. Uh, nevertheless, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, you, may or may, uh, you may agree with me or you may not agree with me regarding the emphasis that I am giving to this exhortation, but I hope that we will all agree, whether we disagree or not on the emphasis, that we all agree on the substance of what I'm about to say. So uh, in one sense, this, this message is really directed to this local church. And in a broader sense, this is a message that could be preached in any church on any given day because these are uh, good instructions from God for every local church that has ever existed. So with that appropriate suspense, would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? We're going to read verses 42 to 47. The emphasis that, that we're going to look at today is one of the four aspects of the curriculum of the church that I believe Luke here is capturing for us in these verses. And the, the one of the four that we're going to focus in on is breaking bread together. Breaking bread together. Would you please stand? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following. And they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who are being saved. Heavenly Father, we we thank You that You have given us this insight into what it is that You long for us to be doing. We can't help but see how in many respects it is a very simple curriculum. You've called us to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I pray that You would help us to do these four things in increasing measure for the building up of the body and for Your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Just a couple of uh, comments before we get into the sermon proper as far as the exhortation that we ought to be breaking bread together. The first thing, do you notice that of the four aspects to the curriculum that I believe we're given here uh, for every local church, evangelism isn't one of the four. Does it mean we ought not to be evangelists? No, of course, we ought to be evangelists. We ought to go out, be ready to to share the hope that we have uh, with anyone who asks. We ought to look for opportunities to share the gospel. That's a given, and there are many places in the New Testament where we're exhorted to that behavior. So, obviously, we're called to be evangelists. We are told to be prepared, to be ready, to give an answer for the hope that we have. We are to go out and to share the gospel, to be ministers of reconciliation. But, But look at where evangelism is tucked into this portrait of the local church. Verse 47, after they were doing all these things, they had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, this, I don't believe this means that we ought to be passive. Just wait for the Lord to add to our number. However, and I think this is the point from this particular passage, if we would focus on these four aspects of the curriculum of the local church, we could not help but grow in number. I believe that. Because these four things, when done in increasing measure, uh, month after month, year after year, season after season, they are abundantly attractive to the world. The world says, wow, what, what is happening over there? That they're doing these things. And then they're drawn to us and then we have opportunity to share the hope that we have and to fold them into the gospel community. Jesus says that we are salt and light. On the one hand, we could go out and I could be a grain of salt or I could be a, a ray or a particle of light. Or we together could be a, a handful of salt and we could be a A shining light, which is more effective? One grain or a salt shaker? One particle or a whole candle? Right? So our witness to the world is a collective witness first and foremost. It's it's when we are we're doing these things together that we bear witness in a powerful way. Not that we ought not to go out and have those one-on-one encounters. Obviously, we are to do that. But but that is in addition to it supplements the primary witness of the church, which is a collective witness. And so when we do these four things, we are a powerful witness in Woodstock. That what we have is real and it's attractive and it is worth looking into. 
Uh, secondly, that's the first sort of side note before we get into it. Secondly, and this is by way of preparation for what we're going to look at, is the context of this. The, the book of Acts is structured in such a way that you have the ascension of Jesus at the beginning of the book, and, and then for chapters 1 or 2 through 4, you've got this portrait of the early church. And there's much debate about whether or not uh, these chapters are descriptive or prescriptive. That is, do they just describe what was happening, or do they prescribe for every local church thereafter to aspire to this kind of behavior? I, I stand on the prescriptive side of that debate, that these chapters are prescriptive. And, and I say that because when you get to chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira. And they are participating in the activity of the local church. They bring their proceeds to the apostles. They sell their property. And they give a portion to the local church. But they say that they're giving everything. Now, it's not wrong. They could have given 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%, 70%, 90%, 99%, or 100%. There's no prescription for how much they ought to have given. The problem was they said this is everything. Because they wanted the glory for themselves of being great givers in the, in, in the mind of the church. But they held some back for themselves. So then God struck them both dead. That's, that's the first sin described for us by Luke in the book of Acts in the church. So Luke is following a pattern in the book of Acts that mimics the book of Genesis. In, in the book of Genesis, God creates the world and He puts Adam and Eve in the garden to take care for it. And then Adam and Eve fall and then thereafter you have sin. You, you have it that imitated, that structure imitated the way that Luke captures the early church. I'm not saying that Ananias and Sapphira were the first sinners in the, in the early church. I'm just saying that that's how Luke has preserved it in the book of Acts. That's how he recorded it. So, so you have then in in chapter 2, God creating the church through Pentecost. Then you have this idyllic, Eden-like portrait of the early church, prescriptive. Then you have the fall of Ananias and Sapphira, which is symbolic of the fall of the church. So we know, in, you know that breaks down if you push that too hard. But from that point forward, the, the local church is a mess right up to the present day. But... Praise be to God that the gates of Hades will not prevail against Christ's church. So even though we're a mess, we are, we are a mess in God's care, in God's hands, and He will finish what He started. So that, that's all very instructive because if you can see that macro structure to the book of Acts as the, as the beginning of the New Testament after the Gospels, after Jesus ascends, then you see here that whatever is written in chapters 2 through 4 is prescriptive. We ought to aspire to be a church like this. The curriculum of the church, as I've already said, let's break it down into four parts. In verse 42, this is prescriptive. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, number one. Number two, to fellowship. Number three, to the breaking of bread. And number four, to prayer. Notice that they devoted themselves. That is, they, this is, these are the four things that occupied their time. When, when they got together to say, well, what ought we do as a local church? These were the four things that they decided that they ought to do. 
Which means then, as, as a local church, some 2,000 years later, far away from this local church, ought we not start here then and, and make sure that we are devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer? And I, you know what I love about this verse is it's so simple. That we, we can make church so complicated. Let's just focus on these four things and get those four things running and running well. And then God will add to our number. And is this an exhaustive list of all the things that we can do? And if we step outside of these boundaries, then then we're into uh, uncharted territory and we ought not be doing those things? No, absolutely not. But these are foundational. Uh, These are the core of the curriculum of the church. Now, I have preached this before. I don't know from the pulpit or maybe, but definitely in classes. And I've said, so if, if verse 42 establishes the curriculum, then I, and this is how I've taught in the past, and I'm going to say that, well, I'm going to change this a little bit. From verse 43 to 47, I said, well, that's the, the character that flows out of the curriculum, that if we do those four things, we can expect to see these things develop in our character. I think there is something to that, that you get the list of the things to do, and if you do those things, even a little bit, you're going to begin to see that our character changes so that from 43 to 47, that begins to manifest itself in our life. But I don't think it's that simple. I want to nuance it a little bit more. Though this character from 43 to 47 will flow out of the curriculum, uh, I've come to see that verses 43 to 47, what they do is they more fully describe for us what this curriculum is. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, We're told that we're to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. What does that look like? Well, it looks like verse 43. We're told that we are to devote ourselves to fellowship. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like verses 44 to 45. Uh, We're told that we ought to devote ourselves to the breaking of bread. Well, what does that even mean? And we'll get into that in a moment. There's a great debate about what it means to break bread. Well, it looks like verse 46. Then we're told that we are to devote ourselves to prayer. What does that look like? Well, it looks like verse 47. And then the capstone is that if you are doing the curriculum the way that it's more fully described, God will add to our number those who are being saved. It's capped with the evangelistic flavor. God's ideal vision for the church has these four parts. Now, at The Rock, as in every church, there's room for us to grow in every one of these parts. So, so in one sense, I, I just exhort you and I exhort myself to, to think about, consider how we individually and corporately can grow in all four of these things, in the, in, in the aspects of this curriculum for the church. But I want to focus in on the breaking of bread I believe that if this local church takes seriously the exhortation that we ought to be breaking bread together, as described here in verse 42 and in verse 46, that we will see God do great things in this church. What does it mean to break bread? And this has been highly uh, debated, and you could get different books and different commentaries, and everyone sort of says something different. Um, I'm going to suggest to you that breaking bread is exactly what it sounds like. It is 
breaking bread. (laughs) It's getting together and eating. Now, some people have said, well, breaking bread is actually worship. It's the Lord's Supper. Well, that is one form of breaking bread because the Lord's Supper necessarily comes with eating. We're gathered together and we're eating. So that is one form of breaking bread, not the only form of breaking bread. Uh, But let's just take a look at verse 46. This is what it means to break bread. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That's what it looks like to break bread. This verse helps us to understand breaking bread by dividing this, this curriculum point into four parts. And we're going to go through each of those four parts as part of my exhortation to you. Number one, frequency. How often? How often ought we to break bread together? Secondly, location. Where? Where should we break bread together? Number three, well, what exactly do we do when we break bread together? And number four, what's the attitude? What's the spiritual component that we bring to this? If this is a spiritual exercise, how is it that breaking bread is worshipful it's a a, a, an important foundational part of the curriculum of the church that's what we're going to look at for the rest of the morning let's take a look first at frequency well what does it say at the beginning of verse 46 how often ought we break bread together once a year once a month once a week day by day what does that mean every day really do we need to Eat together every single day? Well, what does it say? It says day by day. Every day. Yes, every day. The church, every local church, ought to be breaking bread together. That seems like a lot, doesn't it? How are we going to fit that in? Well, does it mean that every person has to break bread with every person every day? Do we have to have a worship service every day? Do we have to have a potluck every day? No, that's, that's not what's being said. It's probably not every person that had to break bread with every person every day. But what it means is you, you take any given local church and every day there's somebody in that local church breaking bread with somebody in that local church. So frequent is the interaction and the eating together of that local church that there would not be a calendar day go by where if you pulled everybody in the church that there wouldn't be somebody getting together to break bread and eat together. Now, just think about that. Uh, think about how that, w- that alone would change the nature of our community, our sense of belonging together. That would would change us. Now, I have no idea what our frequency as a church is for breaking bread. But I would imagine if, and I I highly doubt that we break bread even as a local church every calendar day, but even if we did, I think you could whittle that down and say there's a, a small group of people that are doing a lot of eating with other people at the church. I wouldn't say that it probably is fairly distributed amongst all of our members. Some of you might not remember the last time that you broke bread with somebody except at the Lord's table here at the church. Or maybe you've come to a potluck, but you can't remember having anyone into your house. You can't remember being invited to anybody's house. 
Now, there's others of you who you're gifted in hospitality, and you say, well, I do this, I do this. Well, that's great. Uh, One thing that I've noticed over the years, and it rises up in me as well, whenever you you preach on something where somebody is particularly strong and you're exhorting people, you have two responses. There's either the amen, yes, preach it. This is what we need to hear. Or there's, well, I'm already doing this. Sort of defensive posture. if you're already doing this, wonderful. Uh, this is an exhortation not to really individuals first and foremost, but to us as a church. Jesus wants the church to be eating together every day. And he wants that activity to be, fair, to be fairly distributed amongst all the members. How do we measure this? Do, ought we get a checklist out and say, When's the last time you ate with somebody from the church? No. We, we shouldn't do that. I think there's a, there's a personal accountability before the Lord that we all have to take into consideration and say, you know, how often have I made it in, in my personal intention to participate in this core curriculum of the church? That's where we start. But I think there's an even better way that we can measure this. A way that goes beyond just sort of selfish, inward-looking analysis. Because what can happen there is then we can still sort of say clumped up into little groups. If we did this, there would be no lonely people in the church. That's how we measure this. It doesn't make sense to believe what we believe and have lonely people in the church. So if you're lonely, the church has failed you and you have failed you. you know? it, I've also noticed over time that lonely people often are blaming people. If you're lonely, eat with somebody at the church. It, it doesn't need to be a full meal. You can take the initiative to have soup and crackers, cookies and milk. Likewise, you who are not lonely Do you have eyes for the lonely members amongst us? Are you curious to know who's lonely? Who needs you to eat with them? This goes both ways. Frequency. How often does Jesus want us to be eating together? Every day. Every day. Not every person every day, but someone in the church Every day. Number two, location. Where? Where should we do this eating? Should we go to Jesse's Deli? Should we go to Dean Michael's? Should you come to my house? Can we do it in the church? Yes, 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 and yes. Do it wherever you want. Just find a place, any parcel of land, uh, and eat. Take a blanket. Go to a restaurant. uh, Eat in the open fields. Eat in your homes. Eat at the church. Just 
eat together. Find places. Think of a place that you've never eaten with somebody and go there and eat with them. Uh, the location that we're given here is, is very clear. Uh, continuing on in verse 46, where did they eat? Well, they attended the temple together and they broke bread in their homes. So, so in the one hand, they gathered together regularly and when they gathered together, they ate together. And when they were scattered through the week, they gathered in small pockets and they ate together. Therefore, if you're only attending church on Sundays, you're coming together, even if it's potluck Sunday, you're not, you're not doing quite enough. If you're only meeting with Christians in homes, which is none of you because you're all here, but there are Christians, right, who don't, don't believe in gathering together. Hebrews 10, I think it's 43. Anyway, somewhere says something about that. But if you're only meeting in your home scattered abroad, then that's not enough. You need, we need to be coming together and we need to be get, uh, clustering together in our homes. Gathering together as one large group and clustering together as smaller groups. And, and what I understand from the macro structure of 42 to 47 is that eating ought to be high on the list of things that we like to do whether we're gathered together or we're clustered together. And I wonder, and a few months ago we, we set out to think about worship and what's missing in our worship. And I don't remember, maybe it came up, but I don't remember ever anyone say, writing down, we're not eating enough at church. But I wonder. And you know the Old Testament was structured that way. The whole sacrificial system had an eating component to it. Sacrifices, some were burnt whole, but, but a lot of them were the food of the priests. And then there were other sacrifices where the person who gave the sacrifice was to share it with the, offici the officiating priest. All in thanksgiving and fellowship with God. There's something profoundly spiritual about eating together. Uh, so what does this mean? Well, number one, I think more potlucks. And now, if you're on the hospitality team, you're just, oh, did he really say that? <laughs> we need to come up with a system where it doesn't fall to one team, right? Uh, a potluck system where it's really labor light. You bring your own piece, a, a piece of the feast, and you take that piece home and you clean a little bit. Many hands make light work, right? So uh, maybe we need to, especially now in this transition, I would say, but maybe even forever, like as an enduring practice, uh, and how frequently? Why? Well, I'm not going to put a number on it. Should it be every week? Should it be every other week? Should it be once a month? I, I don't know, but, but I would say that 12 times a year is not too much. As we're gathered together to say, you know what? I'm not going to run away from church at 12 o'clock, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give two more hours to the breaking of bread at the quote-unquote temple. I mean, we're not in a temple, but the temple was that place where that first local church gathered together once a week. It's interesting to me that the high point in worship traditionally has been, and it really ought to be still, we kind of lose it. We put the preaching of the Word as sometimes displaces the Lord's Supper. Uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you decide between the two or praying or singing? They're all important, but there's something profoundly important about communion. Right? 
Jesus instructed us to eat together, to remember his death until he returns. Now, there's a debate. How often ought we share in that? It was a Passover meal before he was crucified. So should we do it once a year? Maybe. Should we do it once a month, which is our practice, right? We do the Lord's Supper once a month? Maybe. Or should every time we eat together be a memorial of Christ's death? Maybe that's it. Every time you break bread together, remember my death until I come again. So whether we're gathered here and we're eating food together here or you're clustered together in your homes, just take a moment and say, before we eat this, as a part of the core curriculum of the church, let's remember what Jesus did. He died for my sin and yours. And He came back to life and He's coming back for us. And then, depending on who you're with, you can say, I wouldn't probably be here with you if we didn't have Jesus in common. You know, the glory of of the church is that natural enemies come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And and those who would be at odds in the world are are united together in, in the church. Consider that when, when you eat together. So how do we measure if, if we're doing this right? Is it a number of potlucks? How many times do we need to be eating in our homes? It's very, hard to, it's very hard to measure this, and I don't think we can put a number on it. But just more generally, how regularly do you come to church? And when you come to church, uh, do you eat? How regularly do you have people from the church into your home? And when you have people in your home, do you offer them something to eat? That doesn't need to be a big meal, but just something. And when you're eating, do you remember the Lord's death until He comes again? Do you regularly accept an invitation to go to someone else's home? All all of this ought to be happening. Let's proceed now to the third. We've sort of already answered this, but let's just take another look at it. The activity. What do we do when we're gathered together in the church? You know, when we're gathered together here on the Lord's Day and when we're clustered together in our homes. Well, what does it say? They received their food. As part of our worship, we ought to be eating. I've already said it, so I don't really need to nail this home very much more. I I will, though, give you an announcement. Uh, You men, on November 11th, we are having a steak night. And we're going to be eating steak. And Steve West, who's a pastor at Crestwick Baptist Church in Guelph, is going to be preaching to us. So... I'm coming back for that event. I wouldn't miss Steak Night, and I wouldn't miss Steve West preaching. He's one of my favorite preachers. Uh, so I'll, I'll be here. I hope all of you men will be here and bring a friend. You can talk to Bruce. Bruce is in charge of this event. And we're going to be talking about what our responsibility is as men, especially in our homes. Uh, so th- that's just one example. We need more events like that. Lastly, what is the attitude that we ought to bring to this 
breaking bread experience. Well, what does it say? They did this with glad and generous hearts. This is very carefully worded. And I, this is very important because everyone, no matter your socioeconomic position, needs to be included in the breaking of bread in the church. And so some people had glad hearts. And some people had generous hearts, but they did it together. Whether they were in the temple when they were gathered together on the Lord's Day, or whether they were clustered together in one another's homes, not everyone is going to be able to host as much. Not everyone is going to be able to bring the same amount of food to the, to the, the weekly gathering when you break bread together at the church. Some people have glad hearts. Some people have generous hearts. Those who have glad hearts are those who receive more than they provide. Those who have generous hearts are those who provide more than they eat. If this is going to work in any local church, and with, with this simple synopsis of the attitude with which we do this, this curriculum point can be done in any local church, in any place in the world, in any time in history. Because you will have some people with glad hearts and some people with generous hearts. And, and I've also heard this. I'm hosting people all the time, but who's inviting me over? There's some truth to that, right? There's some truth. If somebody is, is serving the body of Christ by hosting and hosting well, then it is incumbent on others in the body to host those people in their homes. However, there are different gifts given in the body, and some people are particularly gifted and called to be the host couple or the host family in the church. And your door is a revolving door. And this is a contribution that you make to the church above and beyond that which anyone else will ever do. This is not a, an exchange program where I'll, I will pick up the check today and you will pick up the check tomorrow. There's some that will pick up the check 80 to 90 to 100% of the time. And there's some who will never pick up the check. That's not the primary issue here. It's not, I will host you so that you will host me. It's let's get together and eat together and remember what Jesus has done for us. I will be generous, you be glad. How do we measure this? Well, one thing that we ought to do is i got to be careful here. Here's an idea. <laughs> I have an idea. You can decide if it's, it's a good idea. Uh, maybe we need a larger budget line for potluck Sundays. Maybe rather than pay to play, you know what I mean by that? Like, in order to come to the event, you need to bring food or you need to pay money. You need to buy a ticket. Maybe we pay for this by our weekly offering. So that in a $200,000 budget, $40,000 goes toward food. I just picked those numbers out of the air, okay? That, that's not, the numbers are not the point. The, number, the point is, uh, every week we pass around the offering plate, we put money into that plate so that we can pay for the curriculum of the church. That's what we're doing. A, a huge portion of that money pays the salary of the preacher, teacher, right? Thank you for that. 
I'll just remind you that one of the four curriculum points is the apostles' teaching. It's a good use of money. But maybe equally important is money toward the breaking of bread. It's just an idea. Something to think about. Something to work toward. You can't just sort of do this overnight. But it's an idea. But more important than a particular budget line for the church is that everyone ought to give what they can. What can you give? Time and money and in your house. And even more important than that is everyone ought to partake. Even if you can't afford to partake. Especially if you can't afford to partake. Now why would this be a core curriculum of the church? Doesn't it seem sort of earthy and unspiritual? Like, you know, I kind of understand getting together for Bible study and we have sort of the token scones or muffins on the back table. That, okay, so we'll break bread there, but we're not really getting together to break bread. We're getting together for the apostles' teaching and we're also going to eat together. Maybe the odd person comes for the scone and then they'll sit through the teaching. But usually we're getting together for the apostles' teaching, important core curriculum. Uh, And then the breaking of bread is sort of thrown on top. But why make the breaking of bread a primary core curriculum of the church? What did Jesus say? How will the world know that we are his disciples? By the way, we love one another. There are churches, I, I don't think this is that church, but there, maybe it is here a little bit, actually, where someone over here doesn't know someone over there. Are, are you loving one another? Why, why don't you love one another? Left side and right side. Why? The middle people, they love everybody. <laughs> left side, why don't you love the right side? And right side, why don't you love the left side? You, Because you don't know each other. It's really, really hard to love somebody that you don't know. And so God in His sovereign wisdom has said, you know what, one of the the four most important things that I want you to do as my church is to prioritize, devote yourself to breaking bread together. Because only then can you really love one another. And it's only when you love one another that the world will, will see what you have and they'll want it. Because the world is filled with lonely people. And if the world saw that there were no lonely people here, if, if the world saw that we loved one another, then they would say, well, I, I want a piece of that. And you say, well, yeah, come on in. Break bread with us. And then when you're breaking bread, remember the Lord's death. As a witness to one another, but also to that person who's, who's in from the outside observing what you're doing. And you say, we love one another and we're doing this thing because of what Jesus did for us. 
And, and then if, if you're in an evangelistic moment, you can even say, did you know that, that Je- the night before Jesus did this, he said, I want you to eat together. And every time you eat together, I want you to remember what I've done for you until I come back for you. And they'll say, wow, that's, that's neat. It's, this is such an important part. Uh, the church is more than a group of people learning facts. Oh, I, I love teaching the truth of God's Word. That is one core curriculum point of the church. But we're more than that. We're more than just uh, people coming together to sort of do this thing that looks like school. Uh, we are here to love one another, to be in one another's life. And how do you have real, genuine fellowship where you're willing to give your possessions, maybe even sell your house, to help someone else in the church if you won't even break bread? I mean, I think there's a lot of other things that we could say about this. I mean, I, I, I don't know that they're as important as what I've just said, though. You could say, well, did you know that when two uh, warring nations get together, they would have a peace meal? And I mean, there's all these theories about why eating together is important, but really it boils down to this. Yeah, you're closest with the people you eat with. So eat together. Break bread together. Do it on the Lord's Day when you gather as the church. Do it in your homes. And may there be no lonely people among you. I'm thankful for those of you who are gifted in this. Be patient with those who are not gifted in this. I'm thankful for those who are not gifted in this that that want to grow. I believe... And again, you can disagree with the emphasis that I'm putting this. This is my second last sermon to this church. So it's occupying quite an important place in my own shepherding of this local church. Because I believe though we're doing many things well, one thing that we could stand to grow significantly in is breaking bread together. And if you break bread together, great things will happen here. Let me pray.